Welcome to the Stories in Our Roots podcast. I'm your host, Heather Murphy. In this podcast, we dive deep into how knowing the stories of our ancestors can make a difference in our lives today. Discovering our family history is more than a hobby. It is a way to connect deeply with ourselves, those we love, and the world around us. Thanks so much for joining me today on this episode of Stories in Our Roots. Today's episode is of a conversation with Rob Cook, and we talk about his family's stories of how his grandparents and other ancestors looked at money and how that influenced him in his career choice, and also the way he not only looks at money today, but also how he helps other people look at their money. He has inherited a mindset of being able to work and build a financial legacy for future generations. We also talk about what happens and how we can change when our money mindset isn't that way. How do you think about money and how much of that is something that you've inherited from generations before you? Here is this great episode with Rob Cook. Hi, Rob. Thanks for joining me today. Could you start off and just introduce yourself a little bit, please? Yeah. My name is Rob Cook. By day, I work as a financial advisor. Uh, At night, my passion project is my podcast, Contenders Wanted. And I'm a a husband and father, first and foremost. And yeah, that's a little bit about me, I guess. Okay. Now, you mentioned your financial advisor. And Mm -hmm. when we talked before, you said that your grandfather's example and life really had a lot to do with your mindset about finances and money. Could you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah. So my grandfather's name is Jack Edward Schmidt. He was born in 1937. So he grew up kind of that tail end of the depression, first part of World War II. And his dad was an immigrant from Southern Russia. They were actually Germans who had immigrated from Southern Germany to Southern Russia during the era of Catherine the Great, but that's a whole nother story. But anyways, his dad was an immigrant to the United States and his dad died when he was about 12 years old and he was the oldest. He had one younger sister and his mom. So his mom picked up some odd jobs. Keep in mind, this is, you know, early fifties, the era of the time, you know, in this era, women are supposed to be home. So she, she couldn't make a, a lot as what it really came down to. So he very quickly grew up. He wound up picking up some odd jobs as a kid to help the rest of the family. And then he wound up leaving and going into the military shortly before he graduated from high school. So he goes in the military, everything he makes, he sends back home to the family, his sister and his mom comes home and marries my grandmother serves well, does actually just a desk job, mostly during the Korean war, because by this time it's, you know, post-World war two pre cold war. And he starts working at a forms company, paper forms company, mm-hmm. almost like a Dunder and Mifflin. You could imagine, you know, if anyone's familiar with the office and, uh, marries my grandma, she's not even graduated from high school and she winds up getting married <laughs> to my grandpa and they wind up having four kids in five years. And they bounce around from various places and my grandfather worked up the, the corporate ladder and realized he had this entrepreneurial bug and he could do it on his own. So at this point, his family, he had moved his family up here to the Sacramento area where I'm from now and laid down roots, started his own company. And many, many years later, he was my grandpa. He had a very, very successful paper company actually up here. Um, not so much so that, you know, like tons and tons, but he was, he was very financially successful to the point where he didn't really have to worry about it. 
And as a kid, I always thought my grandpa was super, super rich because he could just pay for anything, right? I mean, as a kid, mm-hmm. like anything is like 20 bucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the thing that how grandpa impacted the way that I look at money and the way that I look at wealth uh, really came later as he told me these stories of his life. Um, see, because when I was a kid, I was fortunate enough that I lived close to my grandfather. And so every summer I got to work with him on his property. He lived on 10 acres out here, kind of on the edge of the suburbs. And so I'd help him mow the pastures and fix fences and paint and all the things that you got to do to just keep property up. And every summer we'd work together on his property and he'd drive me to Carl's Jr. for lunch. And on those drives to and from, and as we sat there at lunch and then inevitably when it just gets too hot for him to keep working, when we're just sitting on the back porch drinking a cold glass of water, we'd talk about life and we inevitably money and finances would come up because that's part of life, right? But my grandfather was the first person that I remember talking to me about money and finance and investing in things as if I was an adult. And so he would kind of blow my mind a little bit as a kid. And he'd tell me these stories of when he was a kid and how things that he had done or when he was first starting the business, things that he had done to to grow it or how he, you know, did certain things that as a kid, what it did is it wound up just piquing my curiosity so much so that it became this like lifelong passion to learn about finance, to learn about investing, learn about how people make money, to learn their stories and figure out, okay, what did you do? A plus B plus C got you here. Okay. What this guy did a plus D plus F got him here. Okay. What could we take between those, you know, type of thing. And so my grandfather and his story, really his stories that he used to tell me about himself as a kid and things that they did sparked this curiosity in me that has just fanned this flame that has just grown into a bonfire that now feeds what I do as my, my day job, my profession. Do you have one of those stories that you can tell that maybe stuck out to you? Oh, there are so many little ones. I guess I could tell a kind of a funny one that in a way is kind of related to it. So my grandfather used to tell me, tell all sorts of stories from when he was a little kid and his dad was still around. So this was, you know, post-depression, early World War One time frame, and money was really tight. And so they got really good at saving their money and being very purposeful about what they did with their money. So if you lost money... You got in a lot of trouble and my great grandpa would go out. He, he was really smart and he, but he wasn't like, you know, a super well-educated man, but he was bright in the fact that his mind was really sharp. So he would, he'd play cards, but he would count cards so that he could then win every hand and not lose any money. And so he taught my grandpa how to do that as a kid. And grandpa would tell me these stories about how they would play. There's an old board game and it has, uh, like sets of two holes that go around in kind of like a U shape. You go around that they would play the kids and they would bet money on it. And my grandpa got really good at it and he wanted to play with like the teenagers and the the younger adults that were playing and he was going to bet money. And you'd tell me stories about how his grandpa would literally beat him if he lost money. So he got really good at counting cards and memorizing and knowing exactly what he was doing. Cause I remember I learned that game as a kid and I was like, Hey grandpa, this is the game he used to play. Can I play against you? And he goes, do you want to, do you really want to? And I was like, yeah, of course I want to. Needless to say, he kicked my trash the first few times because he could literally just pick up the cards and know exactly what was the score. And uh, yeah, it was it was fun. So anyways, yeah, that story of he the very first time that he played that card game and he wound up losing money is de- talking about how his dad kicked his hiney. And he talks to me still about how he says to this day, I still think every time I'm about to take any sort of a bet about on an investment or a business or whatever he have I hedged my bets? Do I know exactly what I'm getting into? Will I, what have I done to protect myself so I don't lose my money? You know, type of thing. So it's, it's a little, bunch of little things like that. Little random stories that you would tell. Yeah. And that's a good example of how 
we look at money when we're children can still, or see our parents, how our parents look at money can affect how when we're as an adult look at money and the choices that we make. For sure. Your money script is actually the the phrase that they use to describe that in our industry. Mm -hmm. What is your money script? What have you learned in the past from your family that then influences the way that you view and use your money today? Yeah, it's a great point. So even though he he still made sure that he had a good thing going, how did his view of money evolve maybe from, because I don't think it was always that scarcity. It doesn't sound oh, like no, it as a child. How did it evolve as he kind of became an adult and kind of owned his own course? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is I don't know exactly if there was one specific thing, but I do. I have a hunch. My grandfather grew up in a family that wasn't very religious, but when my grandpa and my grandma had the four young kids, they met some missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they wound up getting baptized. And my grandma talks about how grandpa completely changed in certain ways in that moment, and I wouldn't be surprised if this was one of those, because for the rest of his life, my grandpa, although he worked hard and he built a very successful business and he was financially successful, he gave abundantly all the time, whether it was of his time or his resources. In fact, there are stories in our family where like, for example, there was a young man in our area who had uh, recently been baptized in the church and wanted to serve a mission in the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. That's a, a typical thing. The, you know, the guys in the white shirts and ties for two years. Well, it costs money to do that. And this young man didn't have any money and his family wasn't willing to financially back him. So my grandfather stepped in and paid his entire mission just because he wanted to give that man, young man an opportunity, something that he was never able to do as a young man, but because he had the financial resources, he wanted to make sure that that young man was taken care of. And he did stuff like that all the time. In fact, my father uh, was actually in a very similar situation, same exact type of thing. My father got baptized as a member of the church when he was roughly 18-ish and uh, you know, met my mom around that same time, who was a member because of her mom and dad getting baptized when she was younger. And um, my dad decided I was, he was going to serve a mission. And in order to do that, in order to fund that, he sold his prized truck just so that he'd have enough money to be able to do that. And my grandpa saw the commitment of my dad and without telling my dad, went and then paid for his mission, but didn't tell my dad at all. So my dad thought he was paying for his mission the whole time. And he's, you know, his, my dad jokes, I was eating beans out of cans trying to make sure I didn't run out of money from my truck because my dad went to Italy. And uh, when he came back, all of his money was still in his bank account. And he went to the bishop and he said, Bishop, you guys are supposed to take the money. You're supposed to use it to pay for the mission. He said, it was already, it was covered. Someone paid for it. And for the longest time, my dad had no clue who had done that. And it was only until years and years later that I think gr grandma may have let it slip that it was grandpa that had paid for it. And so you're right. Grandpa had maybe have had a bit of a scarcity mentality growing up. But then I think in that moment when his whole perspective about what's actually most important in life switched, when he, he made that commitment to God or however you want to describe it, you know, whatever faith you might be from. But when that, I think, switched it from the scarcity to this abundance mentality. And for the rest of his life, he gave back in his time and his money to his family, to his faith and to anyone else that he could help that was standing in need, honestly. What other family members or ancestors stick out in your mind that have influenced you and helped you to become who you are? That's a great question. Both my grandfathers actually were really influential on me. My grandpa Schmidt, the one I've been talking about, he was alive for basically all of my childhood and early adulthood. 
But my grandpa Cook, he passed away about two months before I was born. And I've always felt a, a closeness to him. And ironically, as I've learned the stories of his life and the stories of his parents' lives, I see myself so much in them. So, like, here's a perfect example. My grandpa Cook, born about the same time as my grandpa Schmidt, during the Korean War, he served in the military like so many people back then, but he was a military police officer. And he went to Colorado to get his training and then went off and, and lived and served in Germany for a while. Well, when he was in Colorado, he was in his basic training while he was there, and he was talking with another guy from the area, from the Sacramento area up here in California where we're from. And uh, they're both talking about the girls that they were writing. There was really, and this, this other guy he was talking to, he's really excited. This really cute girl. Oh, and I got this picture. Let me show you. He pulls out this picture, and it was the picture of my grandpa's wife at the time. Now, this is before he met my grandma. So this is his, his, his first wife. He looks at that, and he doesn't say anything. He just goes, oh, yeah, she's a cute girl. Real cute girl. That's exciting for you guys. And they finish their conversation. He goes to his commanding officer and requests some leave. And the commanding officer's like, I think he said, you have four or five days. One of the two. He goes, yes, sir. Gets in his car that night, drives for a day and a half from Colorado to Sacramento, goes to the hospital where at that time wife was working and just shows up on her shift. And she's like, oh, Bill, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on leave for a few days. You want to go for a drive? Sure. So they go for a drive. He takes her straight to the courthouse, divorces her there and leaves her on the steps and drives back to Colorado. <laughs> and that might sound a bit harsh, but there's this intensity and intentionality behind everything that grandpa did. The more stories I hear about. Him, the, so like this idea of like, you burn the bridge, I'm done. I don't care if I have to drive for four straight days. I'm going to do what I think needs to actually be done. And that I can see that same like intensity that same fire that same commitment to like what i think is actually right all the time in my own life that i didn't even realize was something that i may have genetically inherited in some way from my own ancestors and it's funny because there's other stories of his dad doing very similar things as well that we found in in our family history so needless to say that intensity has come down the family line and for me before i used to view my intensity as this like negative thing and now I view it as this like gift that I got from my ancestors that I can learn to use and channel for good. And as long as I put it in the right direction, it really is a, a great strength and a benefit for me. So hopefully that kind of answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's great. So you mentioned before, though, about your Grandpa Schmidt's cabin. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Okay. So like I mentioned before, Grandpa Schmidt, his thing was faith and family. Those were first and foremost for him. So one of the things that he did in order to foster family love and unity and give us a place to all be together is he built a cabin up here in the Tahoe area, actually in Truckee specifically, a couple years before most of us grandkids were born. It wasn't anything huge. It had, you know, three, four rooms, a couple, couple bathrooms and a, a nice larger living area where we could all hang out. But as a kid, we loved the cabin because holidays, frankly, any holiday, doesn't matter if it was winter or summer, we always wanted to go up to the cabin. Cause then we knew our cousins would be up there and it was, it backed up to a golf course that of course, during the winter time, it was just this big giant snowy field where we could have intense snowball fights and it snows enough in Truckee that you could slide off of the, the roof down into the trees that went on either side of the house. And an uncle who had built like a little lean to type of fort in amongst the trees, you know, and we would build snow caves and during the, the winter time and the summertime, we'd go exploring and we'd, we'd make makeshift bows and arrows and different things. It was just this, this place for us that as kids was just a place of adventure. It was this place where we felt so at home 
so close to our family members. We'd stay up late playing games and they, the aunts and uncles would always be go to bed, you know, banishing us to sleep <laughs> as they're sitting down, you know, downstairs playing games on the, the big giant table that was down there. And so as kids, we loved the cabin. But when I was about 10, 11, 12-ish years old, grandpa sold the cabin. Someone came to him with an offer that he couldn't refuse and he sold the cabin. And when us grandkids found out, we were so mad because that was our place. We loved the cabin. We loved being there with our cousins. I mean, because of that, I mean, I was, I can count my cousins as some of my best friends just because of the relation, the experiences we had there at the cabin. And I remember we had our first family gathering after the cabin was gone and it was at grandma and grandpa's house and all of us cousins. I mean, I have 32 cousins on my mom's side mm-hmm. and my grandpa Schmidt's side. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of us that are like, you know, at this time, probably like 15 and below 15 to like eight all got around and surrounded grandpa. So there's at least a dozen of us there. Like, Hey, you sold the cabin. Not cool. You need to build us a new cabin, grandpa. And he just laughed and he's like, you know what? You're right. We need to have a cabin. And my oldest cousin, Krista, she was probably 15 at the time. She, she was smart. She goes, no, 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 no. I don't want you to just say you're going to build the cabin. I want you to sign a contract. <laughs> and grandpa goes, oh, okay. So she goes and gets a piece of paper and then she hands him the piece of paper and she goes, you have to sign this. And he goes, and there's nothing on there. She's like, okay, fine. Write something. So he says, you know, to my grandchildren, I promise that I will rebuild you a cabin. And then he signed his name and dated it below it. And then we all wrote our names around it. And he held onto that piece of paper. And a couple of years go by and we're like, grandpa, we still haven't re- rebuilt the cabin. Grandpa, we still haven't rebuilt the cabin. Now, granted, in hindsight, we had no idea what it cost to actually build a cabin <laughs> or like what we were actually asking our grandpa to do. We just knew how much it meant to us. And a reflection of what kind of a man he was, he did it. He started looking from that time and he found a spot. He built a cabin. And about four years, five years later, after he had signed that contract, we had a new family cabin and that family cabin is still in our family to this day. It's still a place where we love to go as cousins. It's still a place, even though us cousins at this point are in our thirties, you know, twenties and thirties, we all have our own families and stuff. We will still gather there sometimes some of us just to, just because it's the cabin. And so when I think of my grandpa, I think of stuff like that. He knew what was most important. Yeah. Was it going to cost a lot to build a new cabin? Is it cheap to maintain the cabin up there? And we probably don't use it as much as we should, or we used to for sure. But he knew what was most important, creating a place where we could be together as a family, where we could go and make memories, where we could feel like we could escape every once in a while from all the stuff that happens in life and just be together. And that's a beautiful thing because to me, It showed me that at the end of the day, although I work in a profession that's focused around money, although money is a big stressor and it's a part of life, it's just a tool. It's a tool to create experiences and places and memories that bless us and our families for generations to come. It's not something to be hoarded. It's not something to be spent frivolously, but to be used to make what I like to call a real legacy. Yeah. And that was something that popped out to me when I was reading your bio is that you said that wealth isn't just money, it's about legacy. So how do you take that example from your grandparents and parents and look forward to the future? What do you do with what you know from them? 
Well, what it's actually done, I feel like, and to their credit, is it's made me much, me personally, much more intentional about what I do in terms of the type of career that I build, the things that I put my time and my energy and my money into myself. But it's now also informs the way that I serve my clients today. A lot of advisors might sit down and they're like, okay, what are your goals? You want to spend X amount in retirement? Okay, you can go on this vacation. Okay, you're going to do these things. Great. This is what you need. This is how you need to be allocated. Uh, This is what investments you need to do. This is the return I need to get you. Okay, that's great. Those are all important. But at the end of the day, all those things are footnotes when it comes to real life, right? Those are just minor details. Yeah, as an advisor, do I need to know how to properly allocate clients' portfolios and where to put things and good proper tax planning and everything else that comes with being a good advisor? Of course. But my focus isn't on those things. My focus is on sitting with my clients and getting to know them, getting to, coming to understand what's really important in their family. What are the real goals? Not just, all right, what do you want to spend? All right, what, do you, you know, what kind of return do you want? It's more like, all right, how many kids do you have? What's the situation with them? How old are they? Where are they headed? What do you want to do for them? All right, when you think of your family 15, 20 years from now, what kind of family do you want to have? What do you want to be able to do with them? What are the memories that you want to make with them? What are the kind of experiences that you want to be able to give your family because of your hard work and working hard and saving money? Why? Why do you want those things? And it's in those conversations that I have with people where real buy-in from clients takes place and real purpose behind what we do is found. Because if, if it's just a bunch of numbers, if it's just a bunch of arbitrary goals, if it's just ones and zeros, there's really no meaning behind it. But if there's a purpose and a goal for a real reason beyond just, I want to retire. Okay, that's good, but why? And what does retirement really mean to you? Suddenly you flesh them out and they have so much more power in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great that you've been able to take the example of your ancestors and take take the parts that you see the good in and that you not only use them for yourself, but that you're helping other people with them. And that kind of goes along with what your grandfather was doing, sharing what he had with other people. And that seems to be, this is the way that you're doing it. I'm trying. I feel like he did a good job and If I can try and be like him, I feel like I'd be doing a good thing. Would you have anything to say to someone who maybe has a scarcity mindset from their ancestors, from generations, and how they might be able to shift that to a more positive way moving forward? Yeah. Great question, actually. I think the first, very first step is just the recognition. So if you have at least recognized that you have that scarcity mindset, that's a great first step. I think most people, it's kind of, we're like fish in water. You ask the fish, what's it like to be in water? And they don't know any different because that's just just the way it is. And I think this idea of a scarcity mindset is the exact same way. Most of us just live that way. So we don't recognize that that's what it is. So first coming to recognize it. And then I think the second thing is taking purposeful action to push against that mindset, to test if it's really actually true, right? So like, okay, here's a, here's a prime example. One of the scarcity mindsets out there is that there's not enough to give. I can't give charitably. I can't give to others in need. I can't give to my church because I don't have enough, right? Or if I do, I won't have enough. And that is a total scarcity mindset. For those of us that are faith-based, there's a whole faith aspect of that as well. But 
uh, from just a purely abundance versus scarcity mindset practice, if you recognize that you're having that thought like, oh, I can't do that. I can't give. I can't donate because I won't have enough. Push against it. Maybe all you can get yourself to do is to donate $5 right now. Okay, well then do that because before you wouldn't have donated at all. Donate $5 and does it break the bank? See if it actually does, right? Because one thing that I have come to see is that some of the most successful and financially well-off people are some of the most giving people I have ever met in my entire life. Contrary to what cultural stigmas are out there currently, that those with money are just greedy son of a guns that only look after themselves. In my personal experience amongst all of my clients and hundreds of other people that I've come in contact with, it's quite the opposite. They are some of the most generous and thoughtful people I have ever met. And if you want to move that direction, overcome that scarcity mindset, learn to give. Yeah, you might say it's easier to to give when you have lots. That's true. But if you never learn to give when you have nothing, it'll be that much more difficult to give when you have a lot because then the expectation is you'll give more. So start small. Overcome that mentality and it just takes some practice. Recognizing it and then practicing on pushing against it, even if it's just a little bit, just a couple bucks. Yeah, and that's good. And some people like you, they have examples in their family of people who have been generous, but also looking at your ancestors that maybe needed that generosity. Oh, yeah. And helping that to help you move your mindset. You're like, if I could have helped my grandparent when they were a new immigrant, I wish somebody would have helped them. Maybe we can use that in our own helping other people. I think that's a great idea. Great idea. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to talk about your experience with your grandfather and how he looked at money and how that's transferring to you and how we can all kind of change or improve how we how we see finances, even in spite of maybe family narratives that that would kind of hold us back from accomplishing things that we didn't think we could otherwise. Yeah, happy to. Glad I could come here and thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for joining me today for Stories in Our Roots. Please help this podcast grow by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends. If you have feedback or would like to recommend someone to share their story, head to storiesinourroots.com and fill out the form. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.